Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Tel Luca, and this episode is sponsored by ABMP. Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership includes 50 plus member discounts on everything from massage tables and supplies to cell phone service. And all members can access 200 plus continuing education courses with free CE hours. You can read ABMP's award-winning member magazine, Massage and Bodywork at www.massageandbodyworkdigital.com where Whitney and I are both frequent contributors, and where our special guest today, Benny Vaughn, has been featured many times over the years. Thinking practitioner listeners who join ABMP as new members can save $24 at www.abmp.com slash thinking. ABMP, expect more. Hey, Whitney, and welcome, Benny. How are you both doing today? Uh, doing great here on this end, Till. Thanks for uh, asking. It's great to get together with you again, and um, we are very pleased to have a wonderful guest with us today. Um, Benny Vaughn is joining us from Texas today for our discussion. So, uh, Benny, great to have you here on The Thinking Practitioner joining us. Great. Thank you, Till, and thank you, Whitney. Uh, this is a great pleasure. Uh, I am happy for the privilege to contribute today. Very good. Excellent. So, for our listeners, uh, for the one person maybe listening who's never heard of you before, <laughs> for those listeners who uh, aren't as familiar with your uh, background experience, I want you, if you will, just uh, give us a little bit of uh, the whole background. You've been in the massage field for over 40 years, um, groundbreaking and doing all kinds of things during that time. So if you can give us a bit of a synopsis of your uh, timeline through massage and in the field here. Great, Whitney. Thank you. So this is my 45th year doing massage and 45 years of doing massage, I'm still curious, I'm still interested, and I am excited and thrilled each and every day when I go to my office to work with people. So 45 years now, I've been doing massage since 1975. I also am a board certified and licensed athletic trainer, which came after my massage therapy career began. And that happened after my first 10 years in massage therapy. I decided to go back to school and get my certification as an athletic trainer. And for those who may not know what an athletic trainer does, we are charged with the treatment, prevention, and care of athletic injuries. And we often work closely with uh, orthopedists uh, as well as other sports medicine professionals. I did that because one of the key vehicles in athletic training is manual therapy. And I just felt that a massage therapist would be perfect for that. My academic training is in uh, health science education, University of Florida, go Gators. I had to say that. Right. <laughs> And uh, now you remember, uh, I'm an FSU. Um, I, 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 I know, FSU. and that's right. and that's why I said go Gators. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now and, it was uh, only for one quarter of my freshman year, so I don't really count that very much. So. Yeah. So but, you know, it, I did graduate from University of Georgia, so go dogs. Uh, yeah. Okay. There you go. Uh, I did go to high school in Georgia. Right. 
so I, uh, so most of my massage therapy career has been in sports. And a big part of that is in 1969, I was a scholarship athlete at the University of Florida. I ran track there. And what's significant about that is that 1969, there were only five African-American athletes at the entire University of Florida. Let me repeat that. Only five. There were 112 uh, black students on campus out of 28,000. And I was the uh, third uh, athlete recruited for track and field or African-American and the fifth African-American athlete overall recruited and signed by the University of Florida. And it was there in athletics that I became interested in massage therapy because I had read and seen that many of my European counterparts who ran track at the time received regular massage and we weren't seeing that here in the United States. So uh, that's where my interest began because I thought this would be great if I could learn to do this and then introduce it into the sports arena here in America. And that's what I've been doing uh, the past 45 years. I've, I've been part of four U.S. Olympic teams, uh, track and field, where I have been the senior massage therapist promoting massage and ensuring that athletes with the U.S. Olympic team receive massage. And uh, next month would have been my fifth Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, I would have been on the USOC sports medicine staff as the lead massage therapist. But as everyone knows, we're in a pandemic now. And so uh, I will do my fifth Olympic Games as the senior massage therapist in Tokyo uh, next year around this same time. So that's my uh, history in a nutshell. And uh, I have done a lot to ensure that the professional self-esteem of massage, manual therapy, body work is recognized as an equal partner in sports medicine care. And from where I began in 1975 and how massage therapy was treated to 2020, uh, we've made tremendous strides, great strides. And I'll end by saying, the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, the Centennial Olympic Games, the 100th anniversary of the Olympics, I was one of the staff members of the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. And I was in the medical department, and my title was Program Manager for Athlete Medical Services. So it was there in that position that I leveraged my position and authority to include massage therapy as an equal member of credentialing in the medical department. And that's the first Olympic Games, uh, certainly in America, where massage therapists receive the same medical credential that athletic trainers, physical therapists, medical doctors, and chiropractors receive because we were an equal partner. And uh, I did all of that sitting at my desk in the uh, Inform building, uh, Whitney, you know, in downtown Atlanta. Yep. And uh, with the press of 
the enter on my keyboard, that message went all the way to Lausanne, Switzerland, to the IOC. And the next thing you know, massage therapists are credentialed equally for the Centennial Olympic Games as they should be. Yeah. So, I mean, that's worthy of just taking a pause right there just to, to, to really take all of that in and let that sink in how hugely informative that was and uh, impactful that was in setting a lot of things forward. Um, yeah, and that's, in my mind, really just one of many of the things that you've done to, to break ground and, and to really uh, be such a, a leader throughout our profession for all these years. Uh, this particular issue, we wanted to kind of call attention to a lot of current events that are happening, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, and reflect on some of this in relation to what's going on in our profession. And so, you know, the things that you talked about here in terms of, of having accomplished really would be quite remarkable. I mean, truly unbelievable for anybody's career having done that. It makes it even more remarkable, I think, because of a number of challenges that you've had to face that many of us would not have had to face along the way. And I was going to see, can you tell me a little bit about um, some of the early experiences, especially, you know, this is always humorous to me when I hear people talking about having a really hard time building their practice. I mean, it's like, oh, this is so hard. I'm having to be so hard. And I was like, you know, you, why don't you try being an African-American man in the South in the 70s in the massage profession and see how difficult that feels for you. So tell us a little bit about how those, you know, what kind of experiences that you have encountered along the way there. That was well put, Whitney. And, and I have been on stage at uh, massage conferences, and, and I've actually said those words when I hear massage therapists say, oh my, this is so hard to make a living doing massage and, and there's too many massage therapists in my town and I've got to do massages for $3 now because there's so many of them and I can't do it. And I have stood on stage and I will say this again now on air. You are white and you are in America you should have no problem at all building a practice, mm-hmm. period. And then I explain that in 1975, I began my massage career as a 24-year-old African-American male doing massage in the Deep South. Yeah. And if you want to know about challenges, I mean, I got it from both sides. I got it from the African-American community, like a guy touching people, massaging them. I'm not going to do that. So I got the whole homophobic fear and like, wow, why would you want to do that? Like touch somebody? Like, are you massaging men too? Yeah, of course I am. And the reality, and I'll come back to that in a moment. The reality is that I began my career only massaging men and I'll, tell you why in just a moment. So some of the challenges that I had and still even face today periodically, but my stature professionally of getting incredible results, especially in the sports genre, will usually override it. And what I mean by that, I cannot tell you how many times I've had parents show up white parents show up with their white high school athlete to get care 
because they heard that Benny Vaughn was one of the best in town to see. I've spoken to them on the phone. We've arranged the appointment. And the look that I often get when I walk out into the lobby and the parents realize, oh my goodness, this famous massage therapist in sports is a black man. And, and the look is, is just sort of one of amazement, shock. Some try to recover, some don't. And I've seen that so many times because the, the idea in some people's minds is that surely someone this successful in this profession has got to be white. Right. A black man couldn't surely do this. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they realize that I'm really good at what I do and I hold myself to a high standard and they get over it. But I have to tell you, uh, I really should wear like a body cam because it would make a great sequence of videos, the expressions on some white parents' faces when they see me. Mm. And in the end, it's a teachable moment for me. It's an educational moment for them. And I believe that through that interaction, they have a moment to grow and be educated and recognize their own biases and prejudices that are centered around color. So, so do you see those uh, attitudes and perceptions change like over the course of, you know, numerous treatments or is it, you know, pretty quickly or how does that often shift and change for them? Well, it, it shifts and changes pretty quick because I get results. Mm-hmm. I'm result oriented and they get results. And the thing that I think stands out for all of my white clients of which is like 99.8% of my clientele is that the, the results speak for themselves. And what they realize is that I treat everyone exactly the same. So I can have a pro athlete in my office who's making more money than I will ever see in my lifetime or I can see a 70-year-old who's on a fixed income and they both will get the exact same treatment of respect, dignity, professionalism, because in my mind, a hamstring is a hamstring is a hamstring, and it doesn't matter which body it's on. It's a hamstring, and it does the same thing. And so... I, by example, just treat people equally and fairly to demonstrate to them that it can be done without using the color of one's skin or one's social position to dictate how you should be treated. I treat rich people the same as I treat poor people. Respect, dignity, and courtesy. Yeah. So how, uh, what kind of other experiences, you know, from, uh, you've been involved with a lot of very high level healthcare professionals through your work with the Olympics and all of these other venues, the University of Florida, the work that you did down there, all of it, you know, tremendously, again, very groundbreaking. Did you have uh, similar types of, of challenges that were because of your appearance in terms of breaking into some of those kinds of environments from the healthcare community? Well, I'll tell you, Whitney, most of the uh, challenges that I had uh, were not so much color-based 
because by the time I returned to the University of Florida, the large percentage of athletes at the University of Florida now were African American. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't as much of a challenge. Mm -hmm. The challenge was more gender related. So it was more like, okay, do we want female athletes to have a black male working with them? And that, that, that was a palpable piece there during my whole career. And I mentioned earlier, I would come back to that. So the first three years of my massage career in Gainesville, Florida, I only provided massage therapy for male clients. I would not see any white female clients, just wouldn't do it. Because the DNA of that relationship in the Deep South is one of tragedy, uh, trauma, lynchings, and uh, riots over interaction between an African-American man and a white American woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have incredibly brutal history of that. So. Growing up in Columbus, Georgia, that was in my DNA. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was taught as a young man to not even look at a white woman, not even look at a white girl, mm -hmm. let alone speak to them. Yeah. And that, I mean, that comes all the way back from slavery, plantation days, the whole thing. So the first three years of my massage career, I would not massage women. And specifically, I would not massage white women. And so my practice was limited to males only. I only saw males. What happened is I kept getting requests from white women who want to become clients. Could you see me? Blah, blah, blah. Nope. I only see guys and there's a female therapist around the corner. She'd be happy to see you. But finally the request became overwhelming because clients, male and female, were hearing that, wow, this massage therapist really makes a difference with whatever ails you. So I came up with an interesting system. And this is from my life in the Deep South. So I would see a white female client only if they were referred by a white male. So there is my protection shield right there. Mm -hmm. So the husband, the boyfriend, the employer. So that was my protective shield against any accusations, any rumors or anything that would come up. I would only see white female clients who had been referred by white male clients. That was what I had to do to manage the prejudice, the discrimination, and the racism because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. And so frankly, I thought I was pretty brilliant coming up with that yeah. because my uh, practice just like exploded. It just like blew up. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, I don't even have to think about that now. I mean, uh, I've, my clientele is about 50-50. 50% female, 50% male. I have a pretty balanced uh, clientele. And my age range is from uh, 
you know, middle schoolers who are brought in by their parents. And of course the parents are there during the session uh, all the way up to, I think my oldest uh, client, 92. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, they're active adults and, yeah. and so I don't have to uh, be as concerned about that anymore because my professionalism and my reputation has overridden the racist part of it because you can't dispute that. You can't come up with something crazy to make that go away. Mm -hmm. And so you can't come up with some story or anything because the results are demonstrating, man, this guy is professional. He gets things done. But that was uh, how I began. I only saw men and then just the overwhelming request. Uh, I came up with that unique, very Southern based technique to protect myself. Because, uh, I, you know, for people who may not know some of the racist history in America, just Google Emmett Till. Mm. Let's just start there. Google Emmett Till. Here's a young black man who was lynched, murdered, traumatized, brutally beaten with law enforcement, white law enforcement, just standing on the sideline. In fact, they gave him up from the jail to the white lynch mob. And do you know why that young man, for those who may not know this history, do you know why that young man was brutally beaten, killed, murdered, and lynched? Is because he allegedly whistled at a white girl. Mm -hmm. That's like crazy to me. Yeah. However, I've had the same experiences. Mm -hmm. And so in the deep South, all a white woman had to do was just say that colored man looked at me and that man could be killed. Mm -hmm. And that's like so crazy to just think that happened in America. Just go to the, uh, mu the new museum in Birmingham, Alabama that highlights the tragedy of lynchings in America. It's a sad tribute, but it has to be said. And that museum opened last year. Uh, just the, the history of the thousands of lynchings of black men in the South. And many of those lynchings occurred because of some alleged interaction looking or speaking to a white woman. Mm -hmm. And if you touched a white woman, uh, well, you were just dead. Yeah. So this was in my DNA growing up in the deep South. This was in my DNA. So I go into the massage therapy profession and that part of my DNA being is going like, wow, I got to come up with a way to deal with my own concern of racism in my profession of massage therapy. But I have overcome it. And I have overcome it by treating everyone with courtesy, respect, and dignity, and treating everyone exactly the same the way I want to be treated. And I found that that created many educational moments for me with white clients. And so I hope that I have done my part in my profession of massage therapy, helping to reduce racist outlooks by giving people an opportunity to interact with a man of color and see like, wow, this is a human being just like me. 
And so that's been uh, my mission. And I've done a lot of educating, let me tell you. I've, I've had yeah. a lot of people come back and tell me like, wow, I appreciate learning this, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat listening to you, uh, Danny, and I'm, uh, I'm, just, I'm moved. And there's so many uh, thoughts and feelings going through my mind. Your stories of uh, being a pioneer in so many ways, the uh, barriers you had to face, the confidence you, it sounds like you have or you found in your ability to get results and have that be the linchpin of your interaction and the integrity with which you would bring that forth. Yes, thank you, Till, absolutely. So, so let me give you a little, another little thread here. So my whole life, from the time of a young boy, I have often been the first African-American or the only African-American participating in something. And uh, I had an experience last year at the Ford Museum and, uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. And in the Ford Museum, they have the original bus that Rosa Parks was on the day that she decided to not give up her seat to a white man and move to the back of the bus. And the rest is history. So I sat on that bus at the Ford Museum last year. And it was during that time I sat on the bus and I listened to the narration of the Rosa Parks story, uh, which I knew. But at that moment, sitting on that bus, because it was the exact same type of bus that I rode on in the 50s and 60s in Columbus, Georgia with my mother. And so these memories came back of, you get on the bus, you go to the back of the bus. And and so here I am, a 68-year-old man now, and I'm sitting on this bus, and I am suddenly reliving all of these moments of growing up in Columbus, Georgia. And I remember specifically Till and Whitney asking my mother one day, why do we have to go to the back of the bus? I was probably seven years old because something inherently did not feel right about this, but I didn't have the cognitive wherewithal yet, but I knew, and I asked my mother, why are we, going to the back of the bus. There's some seats right here. And I remember my mother jerking my arm so hard, I thought she was going to dislocate my shoulder. And she shushed me and said, don't say anything. That that has always stuck in my mind. Mm -hmm. So a turning point for me. So my father was in the army. He was a, a, a mess sergeant. So he cooked for troops. And he taught me a lot about how to survive encounters with white police officers, how to make sure that you survive so that you could move forward. So in 1959, he requested his family to come to his station during a three-year stint in Germany, Kralsheim, Germany. And in a 24-hour period, I was moved from a segregated society in the States 
and drop into an integrated society in a 24-hour period. This was culture shock. I was nine years old. This was culture shock to me coming from the deep South. But this was the turning point for my life from that point forward to where I am today. And I can remember my mother sitting us down at the kitchen table once we got to the army base and explaining to us what had happened. And she said to us, she says, okay, kids. So I had, uh, at that time, I had uh, two brothers and uh, one sister. And she said, okay, here's what's going to happen, kids. Says, you're going to start school next week and you're going to go to school with white kids. You're going to have white teachers and we're going to live in an apartment building with white neighbors. At this point in time, my eyes must have been as big as saucers because she followed it up and she said, and it's okay. She says, where we are right now, this is okay. Because I thought, oh, surely we're dead now. Ku Klux Klan will be here in a minute. And that was the turning point because during that time, I realized that people of all colors could live together in harmony, cooperate, and no one thought any different of you because of the color of your skin. That was a turning point in my life. So when I came back to the States after three years, drinking out of the colored water fountain, and riding at the back of the bus was no longer an option for me. So I got labeled radical. Yeah, he's one of those black radicals because I was interested in human rights. I was radical. Yes, I was radical. It's a radical departure from segregation and racism. Yes, I was radical. And so I started reading and following the Black Panther Party, Huey Newton. I started reading Malcolm X. I started paying attention to the civil rights marches. Yeah, if that was radical, yeah. It was a radical departure from segregation, racism, and lynching. Yes, it was radical. And so that began to shape the way I would go about my life dealing with racism, which was education. Letting people know, hey, I'm really not any different than you. And just being truthful. And so I played baseball as a young lad, only black kid on the team. I have a photo of the team. I'm the only black kid on the team. I got bused to the all-white high school in 1964, which was the year after the civil rights uh, bill was passed and signed by Lyndon Johnson. So I got bused over to the white high school admits great protests. I didn't want to go. And I endured all the, you know, name calling and this and that and just all the stuff you have to deal with you know threats i mean my goodness i'm in the ninth grade like really yeah older white men you gotta like threaten me seriously is that the i mean look at those little girls going to school in little rock arkansas with grown adults white women and white men threatening 10-year-old black girls who just want to get an education. That's racism at some of its ugliest levels, ugliest yeah. levels. Mm -hmm. And I dealt with it. And I dealt with it by educating people that you and I are really no different. 
And if you're just using color the skin as a way to go about it, wow, like, yeah. So I still do that today because even in 2020, I still get that look sometimes, yeah. not all the time, when a new client shows up and they realize like, oh my goodness, this famous massage therapist, <laughs> African-American man. But what I find is that it's a great moment for them because they suddenly recognize, mm-hmm. oh my, look at me. Yeah. Because I, I give them a safe place when they're there for the session to recognize. I give them a safe place to recognize it and admit it to themselves because they realize very quickly, I make no judgment. I make no call about who they are based on that reaction. I give them a safe place as I do for all of my clients, as all massage therapists do, to be truthful with themselves, often in front of me during the session, and I don't make any judgment. So that's how I've used massage therapy uh, with racism because I get opportunities to do it frequently just because of the color of my skin. So I consider it uh, a great privilege that I can do that. Yeah. And tell me what uh, you mean by, sorry, tell me what you mean by be truthful with themselves. Uh, be truthful with themselves till where they actually uh, recognize that they have had racist tendencies. They, they admit it to themselves. And oftentimes, for example, I, I would say this. So I had a client on the table once, female client, white female client, and I was doing some work on a sports injury that she had. And at one point, she said something about her nails, getting her nails done. And she said to me, she says, yeah, I went over to that chink place, you know, and got, and then she stopped in mid-sentence because she had said chink. And she suddenly remembered, oh my, this is an African-American man massaging me. And I just used a slur because at that moment, she knew that I knew that she had used the N-word too some, at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And okay. so she apologized profusely. I told her I'm making no judgment at all about your character, but what I would encourage you to do, these are my words. I said, what I would encourage you to do is to take this wonderful opportunity to go deep and expand your own potential Mm -hmm. because her potential has been limited in her life because of those racist thoughts. And that's what a lot of people who subscribe to racism, I believe they are limiting their growth. They are limiting their potential. They are limiting their opportunities by being racist. And so that's what I said to her. And, and we've been, uh, you know, good friends, clients and it was that moment that she realized like oh wow look at me and i've had other moments with uh, white male clients who've asked me and who have just shared in private in the safety of the massage therapy treatment room that you know i've not had much interaction with black people 
certainly not black men. And they're almost apologetic. I hope it's okay. Can I ask you some questions like, what is it like, or what is it, or what should we do? So here's something that I'm doing right now. Here's something that I'm doing right now. And I, I started this week doing it. So I thought to myself, given the situation that occurred in Minneapolis, uh, with Mr. George Floyd being murdered by a Minneapolis uh, police officer or former Minneapolis police officer. And the conversations, the protests, and the disruptions that are occurring nationwide and globally, actually, because of that. And I asked myself, what could I do as a massage therapist to contribute to helping to eliminate racism, not reduce it, not manage it, eliminate it. So just set the, the bar high and then we'll see how well we do. So what I began this week is I made a list of all of my white male clients and I have a pretty, um, I have a pretty impressive client list here in Fort Worth, Texas. I mean, I massage the people who make this city go, mm -hmm. politically, economically, et cetera. Very wealthy people, very influential people, people who can call the White House, who have the personal cell phone numbers of staffers at the White House. These people are my clients. And so I said, well, what could I do? I've got, you know, executives from Exxon and, I, you know, that whole deal here in Texas. So what I decided I would do is my contribution uh, to the protest is that I would ask those select white male clients who I consider wealthy, influential, credible, and are well-connected politically and economically in America, that I would ask them to, because some of them have asked me, Benny, what can I do? And what I tell them, what you can do is leverage your white male privilege into an actionable step and create some change. Leverage your white male privilege into an actionable step that will create change. Because this is what I believe. If a whole lot of white men start taking action and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, we're not doing this anymore, it will happen. Mm -hmm. It will happen. And so I have begun this week asking those white male clients of mine to leverage, and the word I use is leverage your white male privilege into an actionable step. Now, there were some athletic trainers uh, two years ago uh, that I used another term, and I'm just going to share it with you. So I was at a dinner with a group of uh, athletic trainers. I was the only African-American person there. The rest are all white female, white male athletic trainers working at various institutions, uh, including the military. And we just got to talking about the issues of uh, you know racism and sports and so forth because athletic trainers work with teams that have a lot of uh, 
young men and women of color on those teams. And, and during that time, I said to them, and, and I think it's because I had a lot of military athletic trainers at that dinner that I use these words, but I told them, I said, you need to weaponize your white male privilege and make something happen. Mm-hmm. Weaponize your white male privilege and make something happen. There was dead silence in the room after I said that. Because they knew that was true. And I think they were just shocked that an African-American man actually said it. Yeah. And so that's what I told that group. Weaponize your white male privilege and make something happen. And so that's what I'm doing currently uh, is I'm asking uh, my white male clan. These are all white males over the age of 55 who have been very successful, ultra successful. They're attorneys, they're accountants. They've been with big oil companies. Uh, They're worth millions of dollars. They all have private jets and full-time flight crews and this kind of stuff. These are the white men that I'm talking to right now. If you want to do something for me, this is what you can do. That's powerful. Leverage your white male privilege. That's very powerful. I'm just wondering if you, uh, and I I know we probably need to take a break pretty soon here, but before we do, I'm wondering if you can help me. I'm not a executive. I don't have a jet. I have privilege. For those of us, you know, we're a practical profession. We want things to do. We want to know exactly what the steps are what to do. You got any suggestions for us white males about how to use our privilege if we're not in that position you described? Yeah. I, I, thank you, Till. I, I think that uh, white males who are involved in massage and body work and manual therapy, you're seeing a lot of other white male clients. And I think when a white male client hears from another white male an expansive thought towards racism, I think that may be even as powerful, maybe even more powerful than hearing it from me. Because hearing it from me, it's like, oh, well, you're an African-American. Of course, you've got a vested interest in this changing. But if you're a white male with white male privilege, your vested interest is in equality and fair treatment. I mean, that's how it's going to be viewed. When they view it with me and I overcome it, but the initial viewing is that, well, of course, you know, you're a black man. Of course, you're going to say that. So all black men are going to say that, but they won't say that about all white men. So when a white man says it, it carries great power. Yeah. And so you could use your white male privilege from your position of credibility and authority in this profession to another white male, and it will be impactful for them thank to hear you. that from you. No, and, you. And sometimes maybe more impactful than me because there's still some suspicion because their racism might still be preventing them from hearing what I'm saying, because they're still stuck on the exterior. But with you, they won't be stuck on the exterior because you look like them. So now they're gonna really listen to your words and your suggestions. So I think that would be pretty awesome if all my white male colleagues did that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd be pretty happy. 
Good. So I've got a couple other things that I want to touch base on here too. So uh, we're going to take just a moment to uh, pause to hear from our halftime sponsor, Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. And thanks much to Andrew Beal and the Books of Discovery team for their support of the podcast. Do be sure to check out their great offer. So, uh, Benny, a couple other things that um, come to mind with this discussion, and and this is so insightful and so valuable for us uh, a lot to hear. Um, I also want to kind of explore some of these issues about our profession in general, because, um, you know, I've always felt that we, I've wondered, like, what is the key to getting, getting a greater degree of diversity and inclusivity in our profession? Because we just don't have many people of color, color in our field. I mean, what do you think? How, what's the trick to that? Yeah, Whitney, I, I think the trick is in two parts. So the very first American Massage Therapy Association convention I went to was in Orlando, Florida in 1975. And there were only a handful of massage therapists of color there. And I would still have some fingers left over from counting. And, uh, and, I, and I took note of that. I was like, wow, there aren't very many African-Americans in this profession. And I began to wonder about that and think about that. And then I realized that part of it is because massage has often been wrapped up in the package of luxury. This mm-hmm. is what the rich and famous do, is that they get massage. And now, of course, we see the massage is an important part of overall wellness and health promotion. And uh, this is why I was uh, not pleased with the governor, uh, Governor Cuomo, who categorized massage in New York City as a luxury. So massage therapists can't work yet because that's a luxury. No, Governor Cuomo. Let me tell you what a luxury is. A luxury is getting dental care. A luxury is getting medical care. A luxury is being able to have a physician that you can call and get health care. That's a luxury that a lot of poor people and people of color can't afford. So why don't we categorize all that as a luxury? But anyway, he categorized massage as a luxury. I disagree with him on that. And it just tells me that uh, the massage therapist in New York will just continue to do uh, more work to educate the governor on that. So that's just an aside. So in the African-American community, in the community of color, massage has always been painted as some sort of luxury deal that, you know, only rich people do this. And so there hasn't been an attraction to receive massage and certainly get trained in it Mm -hmm. because of that. I came at it from a sports angle where I saw it as a beneficial, necessary component. And so it was easy for me to be attracted to it. So I think the first way that we attract diversity 
is to continue to frame massage therapy and body work as a part of healthcare. So the same way that someone goes to school to become a dental hygienist or a chiropractic assistant or a physical therapist or a physical therapy assistant or whatever, we need to frame that massage is on equal footing with this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that would attract diversity instead of it being like, oh, this is like a luxury thing you do. And this is sort of the same as being, you know, a driver or a butler or something, which are all uh, fantastic hospitality careers. So I, I think it just needs to be framed differently. And then uh, two, I think that the massage associations need to do print advertising in um, uh, print publications that are read and distributed primarily in communities of color, Hispanic, African-American, uh, you know, whatever those magazines are or whatever goes on digital, uh, you know, so much is digital now and there are people who know more about that. But I think we need to target advertising about career opportunities in massage and body work in the areas where diverse communities will see it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as long as it's in massage therapy journal and ABMP and, and other you know, professional journals, the only people that are seeing that, of course, are people who are already in it. So I say extend this. I think massage schools and bodywork schools and uh, the Roth Institute and all these, you know, the myofascial release and everything advertise in something other than the trade journals. Like I've never quite understood that, like, why are you advertising a school in a journal being read by people who've already gone to school? Now I can see continuing education, but fundamental school, like you should be advertising somewhere else to attract people. So find those, you know, and advertise in Spanish, you know, in Spanish language newspapers and magazines and say, Hey, here's a pretty cool career that can serve health promotion and wellness in your community. So that's a, so, so one of the massage therapists that I took under my wing three years ago is uh, Mexican, you know, from Mexico. Uh, English is her second language. She went to school uh, here at Texas State University, got her uh, athletic trainer certification, and then attended the Lauderstein Conway School down in Austin, got her massage training. And I got a call from them in Austin said, hey, we've got a student graduating who we think would fit right in with your facility in Fort Worth. So I interviewed her. She's been with me three years. And what we found is that the increase in our Hispanic clientele just exploded because our Hispanic clientele felt comfortable that they saw someone that looked like them in the facility and certainly who spoke the language that they were comfortable with. And I took note of that. I took note of that, like, wow, look how this one massage therapist is influencing her community with the benefits of massage and body work. So 
I think if we take it to that community to advertise, to have articles about massage and body work in Spanish speaking newspapers and magazines, uh, African-American uh, magazines and, and journals, I think that's where it begins. That's how we expand it. Yeah, your idea of addressing this with the schools, I think, is a is a wonderful idea. And then, you know, as I think about that, you know, having traveled around the country to many different schools and also reflecting on my experience where I went to massage school, the immediate thing that comes to mind is these schools are all white. How do these people know what you know publications or what how do i how do i out you know, reach out to the uh, minority communities to get that kind of diversity in there it really is going to require concerted effort on saying well let's step outside of our box here and say like you know let's find some people that can help us find out you know what we need to do to reach out to these communities it definitely is definitely going to take some some effort in there yeah, go to some Hispanic festivals, go to some African-American festivals, mm-hmm. put up a booth there, you know, I don't know, do some seated massage uh, at something at a place that looks different than you. Yeah. And, and frankly, I actually wonder if there's just a fear factor of these majority, you know, uh, white-owned, white student body massage schools, that they're just afraid to go into these communities. And, and here's what I would say to them. Imagine what it's like for me and what it's been like for me. So it can be done. The fear that one might have is just an indication that you're at the border of the life that you know, that you're at the border of the familiar. And now you're going into the unknown. That's a good sign. You should be fearful because fearful indicates that you're moving into something new, something that's unknown, where you can make a difference for people. So don't let fear hold you back. Just know that it's just letting you know I'm at the border of the world that I know. So go to a Hispanic festival. Go to an African-American festival, set up a booth, information, do seated massage, show people like, hey, this is a great career, you know, here's what you can do. And I think that people would be surprised at the interest. Well, you know, and an an interesting thing about that, too, is that uh, we are in a, a climate now where there is a great opportunity for that because we're seeing a decreasing uh, decreasing enrollment numbers in so many schools across the country. So now they're having to look for students in a way that they never had to before, because I think that's one of the things those of us in the white community are, you know, exposed to quite a lot is like, well, we haven't had to really work that hard. We haven't had to really go out and try to recruit students from minority places. We haven't really had to think about, yeah, we don't have much diversity in our field, but oh man, this is great. My school is full. You know, everything's jolly. You know, everything's going good. But now we're at a place where there's a lot more economic pressure on many of these schools. And I think they're, they're at places where, you know, the, the COVID-19 situation has hit the schools uh, hard. They're under much greater pressures now to have to do something. So maybe this is, you know, a, a beneficial time for all of those things to kind of come together as a, as a perfect storm of, 
let's talk about outreach for greater uh, inclusion of lots of different um, communities uh, into some of our educational programs. Because like so many things, I think these things start with education. Uh, they start with education and those plant seeds that they get, you know, percolating up later on. And you're, make, you're giving me lots of ideas, Benny. I'm thinking of the Hispanic therapists, African-American therapists, who come to our continuing education trainings and how in their way they're, they're moving into what is predominantly a white field and in the ways that I can, as a continuation provider, support and encourage them to, be the, to continue their pioneering work, make room for them. That, that, that would be like super awesome. And what I would say to massage school owners, body work, school owners is that just consider that your attitude economically towards people of color might be racist. And what I mean by that is like, oh, these black folks don't have any money. Uh, these Hispanic people don't have any money to pay tuition and go to school because there's this racist attitude that people of color are also poverty stricken mm -hmm. and the media and others have contributed to that because that's all they highlight. Well, let me tell you something. There's some African Americans and some Hispanic families that are rocking it mm -hmm. economically. So don't be misled about the human hierarchy that we've created. You know, we've created this human hierarchy, you know. Well, if you're a housekeeper and if you're a cook, if you're a driver, you're, you know, if you're a landscaper, you know, uh, you can't have much money. Mm, you need to change that attitude and be willing to offer your training to those communities and discover that they can afford tuition. They are interested in this. You just need to treat them with courtesy, respect, and dignity, and not from a human hierarchy standpoint. Yeah, that's great. That's right. There's, a, I mean, we're probably moving toward our wrap up as well, but you know, I'm just really struck by uh, something you said back again, that safe place to be truthful with themselves and your stories about those moments when clients opened up to you. And I recognize that moment. There's like this intimacy that happens in our work where people do relax and open up. And then your model of coming forward and standing in integrity and standing in confidence about what you offer, lack of judgment. It's not confrontational. It's expansive. You're getting in touch with their potential, you say. I'm just thinking of the power of that on the individual level as well. Yeah, it, it, it works. Yeah, it, it, it works. And uh, you give people a safe place to discover themselves. They will discover themselves. So this has been just a, a wonderful exploration of a lot of different facets. I think of, of things that we're grappling with. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with in terms of, um, in particular uh, at this stage of where we are in our world and especially in this country, um, things that you would want to encourage us, you know, our, our sort of microcosm of, of today's discussion is within the massage and manual therapy world. But for those of us that are out there that are, are in positions to do something about it, um, I mean, I certainly feel like 
I've let a lot of time go by in my life of uh, complacency of not really doing those kinds of things that could have been more impactful. What, what other kinds of things would you like to call out for our um, communities of things that you, you think would be really advantageous for us to get engaged in? I, I think massage therapists and body workers are in a fantastic position because you have credibility, you have authority of knowledge about humans and how body-mind interaction creates that human. And I believe that our clients really listen closely to our guidance. What they listen closely to are the words we choose to describe, to encourage, and to educate them. So I would say to my massage therapist and bodywork colleagues, choose words carefully that allow people to think, to expand their perception, and above all else, do not be silent when you hear something from a client that you believe is racist and not right. And you can do this in a non-judgmental way. And the way that you can do it in a non-judgmental way is that you just don't agree. Mm -hmm. All you have to say is, well, thank you for that. And so the two things that I will say to people when they start into that, they'll finish. And I just say to them, tell me more. And then they'll blah, 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 blah. Tell me more. And I keep asking them to tell me more until they get down to a point where they realize like, oh, wow. Mm, maybe that's not so good. Mm-hmm. And that's a non-confrontational you know, way to do it. I just ask them, tell me more. So if a person said to me, oh, you know, uh, those you know, if they use the N word, say those, those ends over there did this and that. No, I just say, tell me more. Well, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, tell me more. And then at the end of that, if they reach that point where they make the discovery, then I commend them and just say, I agree. But if they don't make the discovery, then I say, I don't agree. And the power of not agreeing Mm -hmm. creates major change. So that's what I would suggest to uh, my colleagues out there because we have great opportunity because our clients look to us often for more than just the technique we're doing. They look to us for all kinds of things because they know that that environment is confidential, they know it's safe, they know it's not gonna be broadcast out. And so let's take advantage of that trust that we have built with our clients to allow them to safely discover that, oh my, I'm racist. Mm -hmm. And to do it in a safe environment so they can progress and make the changes that they want to make. So tell me more, 
I agree or I don't agree. And that way you're not being silent and you're not being judgmental. That has power. And that's what I do all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great place for us to wrap up here today. I just, um, I feel so moved by this discussion and I want to thank you so much um, for this. Um, For those people that don't know, you know, our relationship goes back 30 years. We've been friends and colleagues and you've been my main mentor over this time. And um, I just want to say, you know, you are so incredibly inspirational and have been such a big part of getting me to where I am. And I get what your clients have seen in, you know, recognizing that you get wonderful results because you get it in everything that you do. And you've modeled so much for me as an educator and as a person. And I've learned so much from you over the years, especially about a lot of these more personal issues. So I really thank you for sharing that with, with all of us here today. So from my side as well, Benny, I'm just, I'm moved and I'm inspired and you have uh, opened some possibilities for me to uh, confront and act from my own sense of helplessness and anger and uncertainty about everything that's going on and your, uh, again, your confidence and your clarity of what you're bringing forth has touched me. So thank you for that. Yeah. Great. So Benny, where can people find out more about you and your work? If you will uh, tell us where, where you're located. Yes. (laughs) And the reason I went, whoo, because, you know, uh, I've, I'm learning technology now Uh and uh, I've come along to the fact that I'm doing this, tells you how far I've come because Whitney, you, uh, you know where I was about a decade ago with technology. I was nowhere. So um, probably the best way is to just email me. And the reason I say that is that there has been a technology glitch with my website. Uh, The webmaster somehow uh, the platform got hacked and all the people that had websites on this platform, it just disappeared. But my email is good, and it's just benny.von at bennyvontherapy.com. And that's uh, B as in Bravo, E as in Echo, N-N-Y, dot Vaughn, V as in Victor, A as in Apple, U-G-H-N, at bennyvontherapy.com. That's probably the fastest way to reach me, is to just shoot me an email uh, it may take 48 hours for me to get back to you, but I will get back to you. Benny.von at BennyVonTherapy.com. Great. Thank you, Thank you so much. We'll yeah, be sure you. to put that in the show notes for those of you who are listening can access those. Thanks to our sponsors for making this happen. Thanks to our guest, Benny, again, to you. Come by our site for the full show notes, the full transcript, the references and extras. We'll put Benny's contact information there. It's thethinkingpractitioner.com. And uh, Whitney, what's your site? Uh, people can find us uh, over at the Academy of Clinical Massage.com. And uh, also, Till, where are you on the web with your stuff? We are advanced trainings.com. If you have questions, you can email us both at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media under our names or thethinkingpractitioner.com. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen and be sure to tell a friend. Hey, thanks. Thank you both. That sounds great. Benny, thank you again for being here and we'll look forward to uh, some more discussions next go round. Great. Thanks. And thanks for the privilege from both of you.